All right, good morning, familia. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Hannibal, and I wanted to welcome you all again to Written Bible Church. But if you're visiting for the first time, I wanted to speak to you just for a second. Um, let me explain to you who we are as a church and who we aspire to be as a church. As a church, we aspire to be a family that seeks to welcome all who are exhausted and need rest, who have failed and desire forgiveness, and who have sinned and need a savior. If that is you, this is the place for you. So stop looking for another church. This is your church. Amen? But if you're not in that camp, if you are not exhausted and need rest, you have never failed or need forgiveness, you have not sinned or need a savior, let me tell you what you need to hear. This is a place for you. My invitation is for you to stick around. And I think that the Bible is going to convince you that you are wrong. So look at each other and say, we need one another. Go ahead. And then say, we need the Bible. Go ahead. All right. For the last few months, we have been uh, going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we are almost going to the half of the book already. Uh, and for the last few weeks, we've actually been talking about very important topics or themes, I believe. And today, the text for today is not an exception. Today, we're going to talk about forgiveness. And I'm going to answer, I'm going to try to answer by the power of the Spirit, hopefully, um, a very important question that everyone in this room or worshiping with us online should be able to answer. And this is the question. Does God forgive all sins? Now, before you answer that question, because you already answered it in your head, before you answer that question, I want to invite you to consider that that question is not so easy to answer. Actually, I'm going to give you three reasons why. Does God forgive sins? Yes. Does God forgive sins? No. And then why I say what I say? Does God forgive sins? Yes. Does God forgive sins? No. And why I say what I say. Ready? Someone hears that, and I bet that if you like controversy, you just heard what I just said, and you're like, ooh, Hannah was about to get controversial. And I would say, ooh, you are wrong. I'm just going to preach the Bible. <laughs> People love controversy for some reason. So let's go with the first point. Does God forgive all sins? And the answer is plain yes. Right, right from the beginning of the text, we see this group of people that had heard about Jesus and what Jesus is doing, and they decide to bring to Jesus this man that needs help. And in verses 22 and 23, this is what it says. Then they brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Now, that last question is important. Because these people here are wondering if Jesus is the promised King Messiah of the Old Testament. The problem, though, is that they are expecting this King Messiah that will come and elevate all his people into positions of power and then will subjugate or conquer all their enemies by power and force. So to a certain degree, the people that are bringing this man to Jesus... Um, have this idea of a king messiah that is powerful, aggressive, and subjugating. But then you start to struggle with Jesus a little bit 
Because he doesn't fit the description, you know? He's not like the regular guy, King Messiah, that they expected. Because the King or Messiah that they had created in their minds was precisely that. A King or Messiah, the product of their own imagination. It was not the King or the Messiah that the old prophets, the, the prophets in the Old Testament promised. It was the product of their own imagination. And this is part of the reason why the text uses the word astonished. See, that word can be translated in two different ways. It could be translated as amazed or confused. And I actually think that this group of people are super confused about Jesus. Since they are expecting this powerful, aggressive, and subject, uh, subjugating king, they have a hard time understanding that Jesus is both powerful and assertive, but not aggressive. Or that he was making claims that nobody else, nobody else had made, and he's subjugating people, but not by force. He's subjugating people by love and mercy and compassion. See, they have a hard time seeing this Jesus that is both powerful, but that is humble and, and gentle. That's what they're confused. And I actually, I'm going to make the argument that when you are confused with God, and when you are confused with Jesus, it's precisely because the Jesus you have in your head does not fit the description of the Jesus in the Bible. The part of the reason why many of us, including the preachers, sometimes might struggle with what Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus does is because I have already created a Jesus of my own imagination. You know who else did that? The Pharisees. If you have been walking with us as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, you already know that the Pharisees have major issues with Jesus. So these people bring this demon-possessed man and Jesus healed him, and he is no longer blind nor mute. And I want you to see how these people reacted, the Pharisees, in verse 24. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, which is what the word Beelzebul means, that this fellow drives out demons. Now, we're going to dig into that passage, into that verse later on uh, a little bit more, but for now... I don't want you to miss what the, what the Pharisees said. Because from my perspective, that was a major significant accusation, you know? They are saying that Jesus and the devil are partners in ministry. They are saying that Jesus, the Son of God, are doing what he's doing under the influence of the devil. They are saying that the one person, the father publicly said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, is under the control of the devil. That's a significant accusation. And you know where that, you know where that comes from? Envy. See, the whole issue with these people is not just pride. As I've talked about that before, it's envy. And I don't know if you ever experienced that because you're too holy, but I have experienced <laughs> envy from time to time, and this is what it is. When you have envy towards someone, it's because what you have is not good enough or is not enough, 
and you're always craving or wanting what other persons have, and because you don't have what other people have, not only you are miserable, but you want them to be miserable to the point that the tendency is to demonize that other person. That's precisely what the Pharisees are doing. That's how dangerous envy is. Not only you're not happy with yourself, but you want misery for the person that, that, that have what you don't have. You know, it's interesting because when you look for the word, uh, what demonize means, it means to portray someone as evil, to portray someone as wicked, or to portray someone that is a threat. That was the Pharisees. You know what's crazy about these people, though? They are respected already by society. They're people of status and reputation. They do have a lot of things to brag about. But because Jesus was doing something that they wanted to do, but because people are following Jesus more than what they're following him, them, they had to demonize him. And they put Jesus in the same category as Satan. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that like a really bad sin? Like, what would you say? Can God even forgive that sin? I mean, they're messing around with Jesus, you know? They just attributed to Jesus partnership with Satan. How many of you guys think that that's a major sin? Only half of you guys. The rest don't have no opinion whatsoever. How many of you guys think that it's just a light sin? Now, I, I want you to follow the train of thought here because the order matters. The order of events matters. So this is taking place in verse 24. But later on, you keep on reading and you get to verse 31, the beginning of verse 31, and this is what Jesus says. The same person that is the victim of these people, this is what Jesus says. I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Do you know what the word, what the phrase every kind means in the original? Every kind. Like all kinds. Every single sin can be forgiven. Do you know what the word slander means in the original? No. It means blasphemy. And that is significant because Jesus is saying not all, all sins can be forgiven, but even the sin of blasphemy can be forgiven. Every sin, all kinds of sins, all categories of sins, and even the bla blasphemy against the Son of God can be forgiven. And you would say, that's a little bit too much, Hannibal. I know some people whose sins are hideous. Those sins cannot be forgiven. I would ask you two questions. Number one is, how do you know the different categories of sin? Which are the sins that you like the most and you hate the most? And three, that's not what Jesus said. Actually, he repeats it just in case you think that blasphemy cannot be forgiven. In verse 32, the first part, he says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will, man will be forgiven. Now, Jesus' reason is super simple, you know. Do you know why everything can be forgiven? Because as long as the person believes and repents, that's enough. Because the only thing the Bible calls sinners to do is to believe and repent, and that's enough for a person to be forgiven. 
You don't need to fix everything. You don't need to balance things. You don't need to be more good than evil. You have to believe and repent. And believe is a synonym of the word trust. You trust in Jesus and what he did, and you repent of your sins, and that's when your sins are forgiven. Now, when I say that, I, I have been a Christian enough for, for enough time, and I have been a pastor for enough time, to know that within the body of believers, there's always a, a, a Christian or two that have the tendency to view other sins and start forgiven. Not the ones you have, but the ones other people have. Can idolatry be forgiven? Don't we have Israel as an example of how God forgives idolatry? Can, can adultery and a homicide could be forgiven? Don't we have an example of David? Can sexual sin, any kind of sexual sin, be forgiven? Don't we have Samson as an example in the Bible? Can betrayal of Jesus can be forgiven? Don't we have Peter as an example? Can ki killing Christians can be forgiven? Don't we have Paul as an example? Can being a coward be forgiven? Don't we have the disciples as examples? Can violence and stealing be forgiven? Don't we have the example nailed next to Jesus at the cross as an example? Can lack of faith be forgiven? Don't we have the rest of the Bible as an example? Does God forgive every sin? You bet he does. And just in case you don't, you don't get the point, let me read these verses to you. Psalm 65.3. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Psalm 86, verse 5. You, Lord, are forgiven and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who can stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Hallelujah. Does God forgive all sins? Of course he does. Jesus says, I tell you, every kind of sin and slander or blasphemy can be forgiven. The only thing that is required is to believe and repent. Now, I want you to see this because you cannot miss this. The fact that Jesus is having this conversation with these people that are saying this awful thing is an evidence that the Lord is extending grace for, to them because he wants to bring them in. He wants them to believe and to repent. So from that perspective, at least for the first point, I would say that 99.99999999999, that's too long, of sins can be forgiven. Except one sin. And people say, like, ooh, Hannah was about to get controversial. And I would say, ooh, no, which is going to see what the Bible says. Point number two. Does God forgive all sins? Nope. Actually, let me put it even more up front. 
Not even God can forgive this sin. Look at what it says in verse 31. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the spirit, the spirit will not be forgiven. And then in verse 32, he says something similar. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Either in this age or in the age to come. Some people have called that the unforgivable sin. Speaking against the Spirit or blaspheming against the Spirit is the unforgivable sin. So the question is, what does that mean? And to help you understand this, we're going to do this um, for my years as a teacher. I have to make you think. So I'm going to become a teacher for the next two hours. Ready? And we're going to use the Pharisees as a case study. And I want you to follow the train of thought. And I want you to, uh, to follow the order of the text. Because Matthew and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is putting all these verses in order for a reason. So let's read verse 24 again. It says, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drive out demons. Now listen. What I want you to see here is that Jesus is not about to pick up a fight. And he's not going to get all his apologetic tools. And start quoting people left and right. What he's going to do is what he has already done a number of times as we have been walking through the Gospel of Matthew. He's going to invite them to think and to believe. Or to reason and to exercise faith at the same time. You know why that's so important? Because Christianity demands not only that we believe, but that we think. And not only demands that we think, but that we believe. Because our faith is a thinking faith. Are you guys still with me? All right. So these people says, the Pharisee says, listen, you're doing all of this by the power of the devil. And look at how Jesus invites them to think and reason. Verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. And I'm going to paraphrase to explain to you what Jesus is saying there. He's almost saying to these people, help me understand this. You do know that a kingdom or a city or a house that is divided within cannot survive. Like a divided house cannot survive. So please answer this question for me. Because if I am driving demons out by the power of the devil, that doesn't make any sense. Why would the devil be casting out his own people if he knows that a divided house will not stand? Isn't the devil then destroying his own house? That's a brilliant answer. That's a brilliant answer. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a debate with somebody. Uh, but if you're sinful, you feel what I feel. When I'm arguing with somebody and I know that I say something really smart, I could see it in their face and I, en in their face and I enjoy it. <laughs> I just said that it's sinful. Right? So I say something and people are like, uh, uh, uh. How about if I tell you that that's not what Jesus is doing here? 
As much as you will want Jesus to feel the way we feel, that's not what Jesus is doing here. You know why? Because Jesus is gentle and humble. So he's not trying to humiliate these people publicly. He wants to bring them in. And he's saying, think. This is basically the question. Why do you believe what you believe? Like, really, why, why do you believe what you believe? That's what he's saying to them. And, he, and he, like, if the first argument was not enough, he would give them another argument, inviting them to reason and to think with him. And he says in verse 27, And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your, peop- by whom do your people drive out demons or drive them out? So then they will be your judges. Now, what I'm about to say is extra-biblical sources. This is actually coming from Josephus, which he was a Jewish uh, historian. And in his writings, he explains that one of the things that the Pharisees did was to cast out demons. So as religious leaders of that time, part of their responsibility as religious leaders was to cast out demons. So look at what Jesus is saying to them, inviting them to reason and to think. This is basically it. If you guys do what I just did. And you are accusing me that I'm casting out demons under the power of the devil. But if you guys do the same thing, by whose power are you casting out demons? Don't you think that is awkward, Pharisees? And if you notice in the text, they never respond. And Jesus, in love and mercy and compassion, he wants to bring them in. And he's inviting them to think. Because Christianity is a thinking religion, if you will. Our faith is a faith of reason. You have to ask yourself the same question, you know. Why do you believe what you believe? If if you don't ask the question, you assume that what you believe is the right thing to believe. Actually, I want to make the argument super clear that part of the reason why we struggle when someone says something different from the Scripture, contrary to what you have already chosen to believe, even though it's in the Scripture, is because you think that you think objectively. It's because I think that I think objectively. And we are simply the product of a secular age. You know, Charles Taylor, which is a a Canadian philosopher, he wrote a famous book called The Secular Age. It's a book, but this big. And one of the main arguments he makes when he talks about the secular age is that everyone in a secular age assumes that we are objective. That we all somehow assume that the way we see the world, our worldview, our convictions, they're the right way to do it. I don't know if you have ever had a conversation with someone that they always think that they're right. That person is you. That person is me. It's when you make an argument and you say, this is the way to go. And people say, why? I don't know. This is the way to go. And his argument is super simple. He says that part of the reason why we do that and that we have a hard time being objective is because we all have background beliefs. You know what those are? The beliefs behind your beliefs. The things behind your opinion. 
the things behind your tradition. So his whole argument is that we have all been influenced by our history, our background, our experiences, our tradition, and our families. Therefore, none of us come to the Bible completely objective. You know, what I've seen that the most is in multi-ethnic relationships, you know, in a, in a country like ours. Where there's so much painful history. And if you come from a background in which the tendency of the people that were part of your life was to elevate one ethnicity over other, believe it or not, that affected the way you think. Isn't that true when someone comes from a broken relationship into a healthy relationship? Doesn't this person bring all that baggage into the new relationship? You know, in counseling, I heard so many people say some things like, all men are the same. <laughs> really? All men? Maybe the people in your family were the same, but it doesn't mean that all men are the same. All Latinos are the same. All white people are the same. All African Americans are the same. Really? All? Why would anybody make statements like that? It's because we think that we are objective, ignoring that we have been shaped by our history, our traditions, our family, and our context. That's what Jesus is confronting these people with. Why do you believe the things you believe? What beliefs you find behind your beliefs? So because Jesus knows that the only way we're going to be able to confront that is if we think and we reason with the scripture. But he also knows that thinking and reasoning is not enough. That you will not be able to find all your answers. That you won't be able to have enough evidence for you to say, I have to believe in Jesus. Just, by, by, just, just in case, by the way, if you are an atheist and you don't believe in Jesus, that's also a leap of faith, you know? You don't have enough evidence to say that God does not exist. Everyone is living by faith. and Therefore, Jesus is calling these people to think and reason. And then he calls them, take a leap of faith. Believe. Where do I get that from? Verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is Jesus saying to them, based on the argument I just gave you, if I give you a solid argument and you're thinking and you're reasoning, then if I'm not doing everything by the power of the devil, then I must be doing everything by the power of the Spirit. And if I'm doing things by the power of the Spirit, then that means that the kingdom of God has arrived. I am the Messiah. And he's saying, take a leap of faith. Believe. And then he gives them another faith argument in verse 29. Or again... How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. And this is Jesus' way of saying is, yes, Satan is strong. Yes, Satan has power. But if I come into his house 
and I take everything that belongs to him, don't you think that I'm more powerful than Satan? Actually, Jesus is saying, I am more powerful than Satan. Satan came to, uh, came, uh, uh, Satan came to destroy, but I come to heal. Satan came to demolish, but I come to restore. Satan came to kill, but I come to give life. The devil has nothing on me, says Jesus. I am much more powerful than him. Can you just believe? Can you see the combination of Jesus appealing to their minds and at the same time appealing to their hearts? Everyone at the end of the day has to do the same process. You think and you have to believe. Actually, I'm going to make the argument that if you don't choose to believe, you will never be able to see. And just in case they missed it, and just in case you and I missed it, this is what Jesus says in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Can you see it? It's either me or somebody else. Either you believe in me or you're going to believe in someone else. Either you worship me or you're going to worship something else. Either you trust me or you're going to trust something else. You don't get to be in two different worlds. It is either Jesus or it's going to be something else. Not all the roads lead to Rome. Not everyone gets to have the God of their own imagination. Not all truth is God's truth. It's either Jesus or it's going to be something else. And once again, Jesus does not want to embarrass these people. He wants to bring them in. And that's the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is when the Lord makes it clear who he is, what he has done, what he represents, and people purposely say no to him. Even after the evidence is there. So resisting the spirit is saying to the spirit to not glorify the one that he's supposed to glorify. To resist the spirit is to tell him, I don't care about what you are showing me. To resist the spirit is to not allow him to shape your conscience and your heart. Is to say to the spirit of God as he's speaking to you, I don't care. How can God forgive someone who does not want to believe? How can God forgive someone who doesn't want to repent? Did you know that if God forgives a person like that, he is going against his own holiness? If he forgives someone like that, he is going against his own righteousness. If he forgives someone like that, he is going against everything that he has established. God cannot contradict his word. God cannot go, go against his character. That's why that's the unforgivable sins. And this is the thing. No one will be able to come to judgment day and say, oh, God, I didn't have enough information, you know. There's a, a philosopher called uh, Thomas Nagel, a, Super honest. He's a self-proclaimed atheist. 
And he says something that shows why is it that a person cannot come or, or does not come to the feet of Jesus at the end of the day. Look at what he says. It isn't just that I don't believe in God. I naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. Is that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe, the universe to be like that. That's the unforgivable sin. And if you're a believer, you have to understand why is it that you're a believer today. Because God went out of his way to bring you in. That God did everything in his power to bring you in. That it was the work of the Spirit illuminating your mind to bring you in. That it was the power and the presence of the Spirit to give you the, 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 the gift of repentance. That it was God doing to bring you in. And that sometimes, even if you're a Christian, God will make you a struggle and allow you to struggle just to bring you in. To make you believe and to make you repent. You know, I was having a conversation with a young girl that has been struggling with anxiety for a long time. And she says, I understand why you say that God allows me to have anxiety. Because if God takes away from me this anxiety, I will walk away from him. Isn't that aggressive grace? How far God is willing to do to bring you in for you to believe and repent. And if there's an unbeliever here right now, and the question you have in your head is, wait, did I already commit the un unforgivable sin? This is what I would say to you. No, not yet. You know how I know? Because you are here. Because you're listening to this message. Because God is telling you what you're supposed to believe to bring you in. And if there's someone here that is wondering, and the question is, can I ever as a Christian commit the unforgivable sin? And the answer is so simple. No. Because once the spirit lives in the believer, he never walks away. Because you have been, the Bible says, stamped. By the power of the Spirit, with the presence of the Spirit. He will not walk away from him, from you. Does that mean that you cannot resist him? Of course you can resist him. That's why Paul says, do not resist the Spirit. Can't you see how important the Holy Spirit is in your life? He is the one that keeps bringing you in. This is why this story in which Jesus is talking about this man that is, make, is about to make a miracle. The man says, I believe, help my unbelief. That is what it means to be a believer. We believe and yet we struggle with what we believe. 
There's not one person here that believes 100% at all times. There's not one person in this room. And that's one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit must reside in you. Because you believe, but you need to help. The, the Holy Spirit needs to help your unbelief. Sure. Do you understand that? You know how gracious he is. You know how loving he is. So here's a question. Why would Jesus call us to believe and to repent? Why is Jesus having these conversations with the Pharisees? Point number three. Because unless they believe and repent, their own hearts will destroy them. Because unless you and I believe and repent, our own hearts will destroy us. And that comes from the last section of the, of the passage we read. And Jesus here is using a metaphor, and later on he's going to apply it to humanity. Look at what it says in verse 33. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree will, rec will be recognized by its fruit. In other words, if you want to know if a tree is good, you got to look at its fruit. And if you want to know if a tree is bad, you got to look at its fruit. And then he applies that to us in verse 34. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. You know what that means? That there's not one word that you have said that is like, oops, I did it again. That every word we have said is a reflection of our hearts. A good man that brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. I think it's super clear that everything we have ever said that is evil, that is not for edification, that is not for blessing, that is not to love people, but the opposite is a reflection of who you are. It's a reflection of who I am. And then it gets even more complicated because in verse 36 he says, but I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Not because of the words alone, but because of what the words represent, the reality of your heart. Doesn't that make you shake a little bit? And that's why you can stop here. That's why you got to see that this happened at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, but you got to see what happened at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Because it's only at the end of the Gospel of Matthew where we see how is it that Jesus can forgive people after they believe and repent. The only reason why Jesus can forgive people after they believe and repent is because later on he will go to the cross to take the condemnation of the people that sin against him and has sinned against others. Come on, think for a second. Do you know what you deserve? Think about everything that you have said that does not give glory to God and love him and love others. Can you think about that? And when you think about that, then you have to believe why Jesus had to go to the cross to take the condemnation we all deserve. This is why Jesus is calling them to believe and repent. So they could be free of condemnation, but someone had to die for the consequence of that sin. You know why? Because Jesus cannot go against, God cannot go against what he had already established. And he had already said that whoever sins must die. What would happen if Jesus just let you go? 
his law will be broken. And that's why Jesus has to go to the cross. You have no idea how costly your salvation is. Now, if it's true that words are a reflection of someone's heart, I want you to listen to the words of Jesus when he's taking condemnation in your place. Ready? Because if you hear them, you're going to be able to see his heart. At the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do know what they're doing. This is the words of our king pleading for our forgiveness. At the cross, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Those are the words of our king extending salvation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the words of our king experiencing abandonment, the abandonment we deserve. Jesus said at the cross, I thirst. Those are the words of our king in distress because of our sin. And then at the end, he says, it is finished. Those are the words of my king that is triumphant, triumphant over my guilt, my shame, my condemnation, and over Satan. Do you want to know the heart of Jesus? Listen to what he says as he's taking the condemnation you and I deserve. It is only when you believe that that you will be quick to repent. And it's only when you believe that that your life will be about believing and repenting. Amen? Amen? And this is how we will all experience somehow revival. Let's pray. Lord, how easy it is to take for granted that everything that you do, everything that you allowed, everything that you bring, at the end of the day, is to save us from ourselves. And to save us from the consequence of our sin. What a beautiful thing it is to know, Lord, that you will come time and time again to bring us to you, to believe and to repent. I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here that is wondering if they should surrender their life to you, please bring them in. Please allow them to keep asking questions and seeking but at the same time helping, Lord, to take a leap of faith. And as Christians, Lord, for those of us that are believers already, help us, Lord, to continue to believe and to be quick to repent. Because at the end of the day, that is also your work in us. And we thank you for that. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say...